I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. If you're like me, you spend lots of time pouring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times to hunt will be. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and white-tailed deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store. Use the promo code TRUTH to save some money and download it today. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things you can actually buy that will help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This is the reason why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered's saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation, instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current core setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. Welcome to the Truth From Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Spartan Forge. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 310. Today, I'm joined by my buddy, Jake Bush, to talk locating target bucks late in the season, a bed hunter's approach to hunting the rut and post rut, and having patience. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. I hope your your rutcations and your rut hunting has been um, fruitful. It's crazy. We spend the entire year kind of anticipating that late October, early November time frame, and then it just feels like it, it like it whizzes by. But with that, there's still some killer hunting to be had out there. You know, there's uh, especially there, I know there's a lot of guys out there that really kind of prefer that time frame that that kind of goes into not just this week, but leading into even the Thanksgiving time frame where they kind of find those giants kind of 
uh, zombie walking, if you will, trying to find that last doe to, uh, to breed. And then you move into some post rut and, and late season approaches and, and things like that. And if you're like me, you're usually, at least in your home state, uh, for me, um, looking at staring at late season straight in the face and uh, gritting your teeth saying, all right, looks like I'm going to bear the cold and, and have to get after it in, in that regard. Um, so anyway, I got back from Kansas recently. I'm not going to give like the Kansas full kind of report on that on this episode. That'll come out probably next week, I think. This one, I want to just cut straight to my jib here and get jumped into the podcast. But before we do that, I have two quick things to give you guys a heads up on that you're going to want to pay attention to. Uh, especially as we get into like this time of year where you can probably pick up some gear for cheap. And that is of course the case with my buddies over at Exodus. The, you know, they gave me a heads up that um, they're getting ready to gear up for their black Friday, cyber Monday sale. And this is without a doubt, the best opportunity for you to save during the entire course of the year with, uh, with these guys last year, their sale actually closed uh, out closed out with inventory within hours. And I'd make sure that you head over to their website. So exodusoutdoorgear.com and sign up for their newsletter, uh, because that's how they're going to kind of send out the notice to, Hey, jump on the site, save some killer dough, pick up some gear. That's really the only way you're going to be able to find out about it. So you won't want to miss this, uh, entire site wide savings, including their new tailored, uh, built MMT arrows, industry leading Verizon 4G LTE cell camera and all trail camera accessories. If you don't know about Exodus and the Exodus advantage, I find it hard to believe that if you listen to this podcast, but let me just tell you these three things, five year, no BS warranty, five year theft and damage coverage and best in class customer service. Head over to their website, exodusoutdoorgear.com and sign up for their newsletter to get on in on some of the best savings of the year and support the folks that keep this show running. Second thing, this is a new thing. Um, so I actually ended up using this thing called Burpaw. If you've never heard about it or never used it, it's essentially like a mitten that's designed to put on your hand and you rub it on your clothes when you have burrs on them and stuff like that and it, and it pulls them off. So a lot of the gear I use, you know, and that we use as bow hunters is that has some type of like microfabric stuff on it that is great for being quiet is also great for picking up half the timber when you're walking through in, in terms of burrs. And I've had this pair of... Um, uh, Sitka Stratus pants for years that I've, it's my favorite pair of pants to wear. It's super comfortable. They're super quiet, but every year it just picks up everything in terms of burrs as I'm walking around, uh, you know, hunting, scouting, whatever, whatever the case is. And I ended up picking up this, this product, put it on my hand. And I was actually kind of skeptical at first. I was like, how's this thing actually going to work? Rubbed it on my pants and literally burrs. And I think it's called uh, beggar's lice that just kind of gets stuck into the fabric that for years would not come off. And I would spend time actually picking it off at the end of the off season. And I would just get frustrated and stop a couple swipes with this thing, man, and actually clean the clothes up like, like new. And the cool thing is too, is that you don't have the way it's kind of built. Um, it's not abrasive, so it doesn't actually harm fabrics. So you don't have to worry about ruining your pants or a jacket or whatever the case is. And it actually made them like new. It took off everything. And the thing is, is like when you go to clean the actual burr paw, you just rub it together. And then the burrs just kind of over a trash can and the burrs just kind of fall off of it. And it's been a lifesaver as far as like being able to clean my gear because some of my gear was just so, so bad that like it actually would make noise in the woods because like the, 
the burrs and stuff would be sticking together and making the fabric kind of crunch as it was kind of like moving apart. Um, and so this thing was awesome to remove the burr. So if you guys want to check it out, head to burrpaw.com, use the promo code TFTS22 and save 10% off on your purchase. Um, the product is pretty inexpensive. I want to say, I think I paid like 25 bucks for it or something like that. So it's super cheap. Um, and something you definitely need in your kit just to kind of keep your gear from getting all nasty from all the burrs every year. So burrpaw.com promo code TFTS22. Uh, for 10% off. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. I have a killer show for you guys today. My good buddy, Jake Bush is on, you know him, you love him. He's a giant slayer uh, from Ohio now, by the way of uh, New York. And this is kind of a cool conversation because Jake is, of course, well known for uh, killing big deer and more specifically, you know, killing big deer in October, uh, hunting beds, and that's kind of his MO. You, you know, I almost kind of set my watch to it every year where I'm like, hey, you know, by the 3rd of October, Jake's going to have a, a giant on the ground. And this is a little bit of a different year uh, for Jake. Um, you know, if you've not heard, uh, you know, a, a large portion or at least a portion of Ohio of, of somebody's uh, in an area that I have some friends who live in uh, that this particular area has been hit relatively hard, was seemingly hit relatively hard with, with EHD, a lot of dead deer being found and things like that. Um, a lot of deer that Jake had on his target list, big deer, um, turned up missing. And then eventually he either found them himself laying dead in the woods or talked to, you know, someone else who maybe was scouting and found the deer, you know, and trading information or, um, you know, talked to some local farmers and some locals who had found them dead, you know, in their pond or, or in their Creek or whatever the case is. So with that kind of makes it for tough sledding for someone who is, you know, really good at targeting a specific deer, you know, and, you know, whenever they're all turning up dead. And so what we really talk about in this session is, you know, like a lot of, for a lot of reasons, you can have deer that turn up missing or that you just lose them. You know, this is a good example for me for this year, at least locally, where I just didn't have quality bucks that I was seeing on camera. And so I was having to just kind of not hunt on a whim, but do a lot less kind of strategic kind of strikes and more like, I just got to go out and walk and see if there's sign being laid down somewhere and, and figure out where, where I'm going to hunt. And so that's a lot about what we talk about. Like what the hell do you do whenever the deer that you plan to chase go missing? Or if you're in a part of the season where you're struggling to find a deer that you would like to hunt. And so we talk a lot about that. And so that of course bleeds into the idea that, you know, Jake is a, is known as a bed hunter and he's hunting, you know, rut as we speak, you know, potentially post rut and then into late season. And so we talk about all of that and what his approach is on finding a target deer when they seemingly have all, um, died, off, uh, died off at this point. And the thing that I thought was really interesting kind of takeaway, and we talk about it toward the end of the show is, you know, he really kind of talks about, you know, having patience and that maybe several years ago, it wouldn't have been the case and that, um, a bad situation that he has currently for his hunting, hunting situation, you know, um, has actually, you know, he has a really kind of positive outlook on it and a, and a positive spin on it and has found the silver lining, um, in this whole season. that has been a little bit of a, a rat race for him, so to speak. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. And as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast. And today I've got my buddy on Mr. Jake Bush. What's going on, brother? Hey, thanks for having me back on, Clint. You bet, man. You, you're you're welcome all the time, man. There's a, there's an open door policy for you. Anytime you want to walk in, you're good to go. How's that? Oh yeah, I'll take you up on that. That <laughs> nice. sounds great. <laughs> nice. How's uh how's the family, bro? How how are the how how's the kiddo doing? 
Uh, kiddo's wild. He's doing, he's getting big. He's, uh, he's adventurous. So yeah, I see that, that side of me starting to come out in him a little bit and it's awesome. Um, but yeah, doing really good. Everything's good here in Ohio. How about you? Good, man. Family's good. Got the kid doing, uh, jujitsu with me now a couple days a week, teaching her some chokes. So she choked her mom out this weekend. So that that's fun. <laughs> You know, so no, I shouldn't say awesome. choked her out. She didn't sleep her, but, uh, it was, she, uh, she was demonstrating on my wife. They went back home, uh, while I was away hunting this past weekend, they went back home to visit and, uh, she was demonstrating the stuff that she learns. It's funny cause she takes the kids classes. So they don't really teach the kids chokes. Cause coach is like, I really don't want, you know, little Johnny going home and choking the daylights out of little Sally until they understand like their ramifications for choking someone. Um, but you know, my daughter's a little older, so I teach her some stuff like when we're at home. And so when she goes back home, it's her opportunity to demonstrate for her grandparents and stuff. And so either her uncle or my wife are her guinea pigs where she chokes them to show people what she's learning. So that's always a good time. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's right. That's right, man. What, uh, so what, uh, when, so when you say he's adventurous and you're seeing a little bit of yourself in him, let me ask you an honest question. How much does that scare you? <laughs> All the time. Yeah. That is like the, my biggest fear to be honest with you. I think he's, uh, it, he's he's a, a hard one to to keep still that's for sure he wants to go outside already you know he's 17 months and he's like oh i want to go conquer the world i i want to go do all sorts of things so yeah right. we're gonna we're gonna see what happens there <laughs> that's awesome man that's uh, i remember when my buddies uh, when i was living in florida uh had, had some kids they had kids before i did and they had uh, they each had a boy and so i really i saw them and i was just like man that's like a that's crazy. That's crazy talk. And then I had my daughter and she was always just so like, you know, well-behaved and like, just like, it's like night and day. And I never really understood the difference until I finally had my, my daughter and just talking to my buddies who had boys and they're like, yeah, he's like climbing the bookshelf today. He's on top of it when I came home, you know, <laughs> like that's like their story. And I'm like, yeah, my daughter was, home, uh, you know, in her bedroom drawing. You know, so oh, that's, no. kind, that's yeah. kind of the juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he thinks that he can climb out of his crib. He climbs up over the couch. He's like out of control all day long, but we love it. We love him. <laughs> right, man. So I haven't had a chance to uh, catch up with you uh, since, la uh, since last year. So what's been, uh, what's been going on? How did last, I mean, I know you killed a, a good year last year and we talked about that, but how was kind of like your off season and you know, how was your kind of planning for this upcoming season, you know, prior to, you know, let's say like prior to August, September, like what was your kind of approach? How are you feeling? Cause I know last year you spent a ton of time kind of breaking a lot of new ground, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. So I had a chance through off, off season scouting to really fine tune a lot of those areas. Um, and I'm building up this list, you know, I've heard Dan Infault talk about it, about how, over the years, he just, instead of having one good spot or two good spots, he's got, you know, 20 or 30 good spots. And I feel like I'm just really building up that list. Um, I had my biggest year ever right now. I'm over 750 miles boots on the ground this, this year, uh, which is just more than I, I thought I would have. That's for sure. Obviously going into season now, scouting a little bit more than I anticipated adding to that. Um, but I, I really felt good going into uh, September when I was going to have some trail camera card poles, you know, I've scouted a ton of new areas. I've really started to fine tune them. I have, I stacked a lot of spots in my favor. Um, you know, food was back to where it should be this year. We had a pretty good white oak crop down here. So I felt really good about a lot of these areas. Uh, it might, the areas that I hunt that have ag nearby had like standing cornfields. So I felt good about those because a lot of times the beans get cut early and it just all seemed to be uh, stacking up in my favor. 
into September and I was really, really confident going into those camera polls. Um, and then obviously the, the camera polls were nothing close to what I expected with, I had really good bucks on them early, like July and August. And then they kind of just disappeared and it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. You know, that's one of my things that I really try to focus on is the anticipation of the shift that happens mm -hmm. come September and pulling those cameras and seeing the exact opposite that a lot of those deer disappeared had me, had me scratching my head at first. I couldn't figure it out. Um, you know, up to that point, we hadn't heard of the EHD thing a whole lot here. We had heard about it down in Cincinnati, but shortly into September, it started just going crazy here. And I mean, if you check the, the DNR maps now, it's that below 70 of Southern Ohio just got absolutely annihilated in a lot of spots. And, hmm. you know, I think that the reason that I saw such bad, uh, EHD hits in my areas is I think that I look for very specific things that set up the same terrain wise. They set up the same drainage wise. They have the same kind of like Creek systems running through them. And, um, I think that that like generality of that, you know, terrain just got hammered with EHD for whatever reason. Hmm. And it just, yeah, it was a nightmare, man. So, so tell, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember, like I have an idea just from the times that we've talked, like the types of things that you look for, but do you often, are you often looking for like, uh, like running water systems? Like when you say drainage systems, are you typically looking for something that's going to have like either a spring runoff or like a mountain runoff or, or something like that? Is that, cause it isn't EHD, it's the biting midges, right? And so there usually needs to be some type of like, uh, wet, moist area, right. That kind of recedes to a degree or whatever that creates the environment for those things to kind of live, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, so are, you, are those types of terrain features you're looking at typically hold some type of water yeah so yeah. a lot of them hold like uh even like swampy bottoms okay. so like e either a creek system that's very wet and muddy or like swampy bottoms with a lot of beaver dams mm -hmm. and so that water had built up through the you know june july we had a wet june july it built up that water table a lot and then as that receded through august and september it just both created like the perfect storm for breeding habitat for those midges and uh, obviously the deer are coming down because it's the hottest time of year. Mm -hmm. And then I, I've heard a couple different things about how bigger bucks are more susceptible because of the amount of antler on their head that has uh, that has um, velvet. And the midges can feed on the velvet easier than they can get through the hair and feed on the fur of a, or on the skin of a deer. And so more mature bucks that have more velvet are more susceptible to EHD, which is exactly what I'm seeing. Hmm. You know, I would, in an area, I would find my mature deer dead, but like the two-year-olds survived and a lot of does survived. Hmm. And that didn't make sense to me at first. And then after hearing that, it kind of, you know, rung a bell. I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, they were, they're feeding on their antlers on the velvet and that, that's how it was getting into their blood system. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, that would be the, the blood, I guess would be, and I'm no biologist, but I'm assuming that it's, the blood would be closest to the surface at that point for them to be able to feed on would be what I would guess. Are they actually feeding on the velvet? I, well, yeah, I think it's the blood, but I think it's so easy to penetrate that velvet yeah. as opposed to getting through the fur and down to the skin right. of a deer. It just, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Right. Right. Yeah, man. I'm, I've been having a rough go of it this year too. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I shouldn't be surprised hearing you say, you know, that once you kind of figured out that like, Hey, all these similar, uh, terrain features, I'm finding all the same results uh, made me kind of stop and think. And I'm like, man. I kind of prioritize a lot of my setups, you know, in and around, you know, certain kind of swamp areas. I don't think we're having an EHD issue, but I've just had, and I usually look for feed trees. They're going to be like 
not that I'm necessarily going to hunt right on it, but I want one kind of relatively close by, you know what I mean? And, um, is of course scrapes and, and basically what I have going on here is that every feed tree that I marked uh, last year, the year prior, I've gone back to every one of them and I have not a single white oak anywhere that has dropped. And so basically it, it essentially killed like my camera inventory, even my summer inventory for the most part wasn't, wasn't great. Um, you know, and then whenever I went through about the time things should be dropping and just kind of you know, went through and made my check of like, all right, you know, what, what oaks are holding, what's dropping, you know, that way I could kind of start making my plan. I didn't find dead deer, but I basically found dead spots. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, I totally understand that. You know, which has been, which has been a, uh, basically a kick in the pants, man. Cause I had high hopes for, for this year. I had one deer in particular that I was thought would be back. I mean, he could still be alive and just not in the general area, but so before we, before we jump into more about, you know, what's going on in Ohio. I want to talk to you a little bit about, about Kansas. Cause I'm literally was packing today. I'm getting ready to leave as, as this comes out. I think I'll actually be in Kansas if I'm not mistaken, if, if, if those are, are the dates. So when you were there last year, was, was that the first time you had been to Kansas or had you been there before? Yeah, that was the first time. First time. So what was, uh, so just, you know, going into it, man, what was your kind of initial thought whenever you had kind of you know, got there and was, you know, really kind of putting your, your plan together. What was your kind of initial thinking of just like the landscape and, you know, how different it is from, you know, Ohio or New York or, or wherever? Yeah, it's quite a bit different. You know, I was really focused on like the inverse of the topography as I am here, mm-hmm. where instead of focusing on like these uh, ridge systems, I was more focused on like the drainages and how mm-hmm. they would create their own little hubs. Um, so it really does almost equal the same thing. And then you can play the wind-based game off of those two. And that was kind of my thought process. Uh, you know, I did a lot of e-scouting before I went out there. I e-scouted every piece of public in Weha and the units that I had available to hunt. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I was really thinking outside of the box. And uh, it was really funny because I got out there and every other person apparently <laughs> thinks outside the box. So, <laughs> so I guess I'm not that much different. Like I, everywhere that I had pinned, like my top 15 spots were all just hammered by people. Uh, and so I had to just, you know evolve and adapt as quickly as I could. And what I realized was anywhere that you could put a tree stand was going to have uh, like either a private or a uh, ladder stand from like somebody that's local, or it was going to have like climbers and stuff. Right. Uh, so I just went back to my maps and I was like, okay, well I'm going to delete everything that has any sort of, any sort of like wooded yeah. creek bottom or tree line or anything. And I'm just going to get out in like the, uh, in the big grassy plain areas and try to find like some just drainages that meet that might have like one tree mm-hmm. or might have a couple trees. And so I started focusing on that. I picked out a couple. Um, and it just so happened the first one I went into, I had a buck walk by me, but that was going to be my thought process from there out mm-hmm. was just getting into these, you know, really open areas that have a couple trees and just trying to get like set up in this, a lot of times probably a dead tree, like six feet off the ground, right. just high enough to shoot. Um, but yeah, I feel like there was more success to be had there than there was on those big wooded creek bottoms. Yeah, it's so I, I found the same thing when we went when we went out there. Um, the one thing you mentioned about like finding a like a lone tree and like a you know like in a CRP field or a grassy area or something like that. It's funny because whenever I was talking to Eddie Claypool in the past, that's something that we that we talked about, and because he you know, lives in Oklahoma, hunts Kansas a lot. And he basically said the same thing that you're kind of saying. He said it to me. He's like, Hey, if you want a chance to get away from people, you know, and if you want a chance to see a really big deer, 
he was like, you know, yeah, you could sit in a drainage. He's like, and a lot of other people be doing that too. And he's like, you can have yourself a lot of fun, you know, and, and see bucks cruise by cause they will, um, you know, and he's like, can you probably get a respectable buck or whatever the case is? He was like, you know, the big ones typically he's like, or just in general, he's like, if you can find that single thing out in the middle of nowhere, he's like, you'll be surprised how that, because they have very little edge or structure, so to speak, that becomes their structure. He's like, and you will just be surprised that there'll be like a, a big piece of shrubbery or a tree out in the middle of this grassland. He's like, and every deer will walk within 20 yards of it when you, when you sit back in glass. He was like, and it's just, he's like, I don't know why he's like, but I've always seen it, seen it happen. So that's interesting. You kind of picked up on that right away. Yeah. And I think one of the things that helped me out with that was hunting some cattail marshes back home mm-hmm. growing up. Um, you would, you could see the same thing on, on a map. Like if you open up like a satellite image of a cattail marsh, there's a lone tree. It almost looks like a hub where like all the spokes are different deer trails and they kind of converge at the tree and then they branch out whatever direction they're going to go. And could it be bedding sometimes? Absolutely. If the root wad's big enough, but I think a lot of times it's just a focal point. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a, a, the deer know how to navigate to that tree. And then from that tree, they know where they want to go. They make their mind up. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's what it stemmed from. Um, and of course I've listened to Eddie on your podcast, so that right. definitely helped me too. Thanks Eddie. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> I know. Right. Right. That guy, he's, he's forgotten more about killing deer than, than I'll probably ever know, but it's, uh, I mean, my approach last year, and it's actually going to be the same approach I take this year was I drove a lot and just glassed a lot. And that's really kind of what my, my plan is. And I would, you know, see a deer either, you know, at one point Chad and I bedded one and we spot and stalked it, you know, and we got relatively close and then, you know, busted him out of his bed. And then, you know, the one really great encounter we had, we actually saw this deer in this winter wheat field glassed him pushing a doe and, and we looked at the map real quick and we were like, he's going to cut her into this drainage. And so we literally jumped out of the truck and just took off running like bow in hand, just running through the, through the, through the grass, down through the, this little cattail area, through the timber, got to the bottom of that drainage and set up. And like, it wasn't five minutes later that deer came by and it was crazy. Like it was stuff that I had seen <laughs> on like white tail adrenaline was like, I oh, mean, that's crazy. I could never do that. And sure as shit, <laughs> it happened, you know, it just didn't, uh, didn't manage to get an arrow in that deer. So that's kind of, that's really my approach, which is vastly different from the way I hunt at home. So how, how, how different was your approach in Kansas to where you usually, where do you usually hunt, whether it's Ohio, New York, or whatever the case is, did you do a lot more glassing or were you, you changed, the, yeah, so- you, you changed your, your tactic with like the, what terrain you were going to focus on, but how did your approach overall change at all? Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, I was still, I was still focused on the hubs as much as I could get that where it was just inverse. Like we were talking about, it was like the creeks that were kind of ran into the same type of spot um, or like brushy draws that would kind of converge somewhere. Like I still focused on that, but I definitely had uh, a few different tactics in the back of my head that I was trying to implement. Like where I killed that deer that night, it was a good spot to sit and there was a convergence there, but I could also glass a bunch of hillsides. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my thought process is, you know, get some glass in this area and figure out what the deer are doing and how they're traveling. And then you can make your play. And I really like that for the rut is like, you see, you know, okay, there goes a three-year-old. Okay. There goes a four-year-old. Okay. There's a bunch of bucks over on that Ridge doing that or, or making that travel route. I'm going to get down and then go over there mm-hmm. and, you know, play off of that. I like the, like the idea of that. That was probably the biggest change that I had was just the amount of glassing 
that I could utilize and try and kind of, you know, rotate based on that. Um, where here it's more, especially in a rut situation, I'm just trying to find those specific terrain features and just sit them as sometimes as long as, as long as it takes right. in the rut. Like that, that was kind of my thought process two years ago. Um, so yeah, it definitely changed quite a bit. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy how, how important a visual is in, in the plains. You know, because I've I've heard, you know, uh, the guys again from White Teller Journal kind of talk about not losing visual, keeping a visual, and just watching what deer are doing. Because oftentimes, you know, you know as, as well as I do, you know, whether it's Ohio, PA, or whatever the case is, you know, there's just not a ton of open areas, and you you don't always have a visual, and so you have to kind of, you know, you might have an encounter and see something happen, and then you have to kind of extrapolate that out. You don't see it happen for like a you don't see it happen like four times in a day necessarily. Where literally out there, you can glass, you can watch three bucks in, in the past three hours, cut does out and run them to the same, pl- same spot, you know? And then you're like, okay, that's where the game's at. You know, um, that essentially the place that I'm going, that's kind of what we watched last year is there's one basic, uh, cedar, uh, cedar drainage that they, every buck who was trying to push a doe or cut a doe out all went to that spot. And that was actually the next to last day where I set up. And that's where I had some really great encounters in there. I ended up seeing four bucks that day within like probably 45 minutes to an hour. Um, rattling sequence and like every buck in the freaking timber showed up, <laughs> which was, which was kind of bananas. But, uh, how did that, uh, final hunt play out, man? So you found, was it in a loon, was it in a loon tree in the middle of nowhere? So it was, this spot had a couple trees in the bottom. There okay. was, it was, it was kind of like what you're talking about. It was, a it was wide open cattle pasture and in the draws, they were just kind of thick and brushy and they had like these short pines, like they might've been. 15 feet tall or something like that. And there was like a couple old dead trees in there too. And really there was only one that I could get my stand in. And I mean, it was the nastiest, gnarliest thing I've ever put a tree stand in hands down. It had a hundred thousand limbs hanging off of it. I'm pretty sure. Um, and I could only get up like maybe eight feet high. And so Mm -hmm. I was really almost eye level with the deer, but I had one of those short pines that came up to about my waist. And so I could shoot right over that pine sitting down to that, where that intersection was. Mm -hmm. And I mean, first night, I, I actually set that stand up in anticipation of the next day with a Southwest wind. And I was planning on sitting it all day long. And I figured I'd have travel, you know, throughout that area. Um, it had a really good piece of private next to it. That was very thick that I thought, okay, there's the, there's a lot of bedding cover. I'm on the downwind side of the bedding cover. Deer should be coming through here, scent checking that whole area, just running up this Creek. And, uh, yeah, it just so happened that he came down the first night. But my thought was was exactly that. Just kind of sit that spot over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I definitely it was it was definitely way less trees than everything else. And the the type of trees was the big thing where a lot of those wooded creek bottoms are, you know, oaks and everything else that are these big, tall, beautiful trees that you can get climbers in and everything else. This spot, this brushy area was just like just brush trees pretty much and they were just the worst thing to possibly get a tree stand in and so i just think it deterred everybody like nobody wanted to go try to put a ladder stand or a climb (laughs) there's no i don't think you could i don't i do not think that you could have got a climber in any of those yeah it's it's funny because every tree out there it seems like is either either a cottonwood that is like 10 feet in circumference that you couldn't get a tree stand in it or a saddle or a climb or anything and if you if your life depended on it the one tree i ended up climbing was a like one of those thorny ass locust trees that have like the, oh yeah oh dude that those things are but it was literally the only tree and so the the day before 
I was on the ground and had that encounter with that great deer and I just didn't get the wind. Like I was supposed to have a North wind of like five to seven mile per hour. And it just so happened when that deer showed up, I had no wind thermals dropping over this little kind of side. And that's kind of where he went to try to scent check. And he stopped, you know, short of, you know, two steps short of giving me a shot opportunity. So the next day I was like, man, I was like, I'm going to get into a tree if it's the last thing I do down there. Because I was like, if I was in a tree yesterday, like that deer would have been shot. He would have been 15 yards broadside, no problems. And so I ended up making it work, but it was uh, some cut up knuckles. I got, you know, stuck with plenty of locust thorns and the trees there are just miserable, dude. I, I want to say that someone just like implanted those types of trees in Kansas uh, as, a, as a really mean, cruel trick. Like, yeah, there's trees in Kansas. They all suck, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> they sure do. I just can't imagine without having like good mobile equipment, even, even attempting to get in some of that stuff. So I think that that's what separates, you know, a lot of guys that are probably listening to this podcast that have that mobile gear. It's like you, you have a one up on a lot of people that are using more of the traditional like climbers or ladder stands or stuff like that when you get in those areas. Yeah, exactly, man. Because, well, I think the other one up too is, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I did you know, a lot of driving in glass and then a lot of walking because you would see a piece and if you couldn't glass a piece, I mean, they're in, they're in sections that are like, you know, mile by mile. And so it, it's not a lot to get out and just like walk the whole thing real quick to kind of check it. And so, but you always want your gear and I didn't know whether if I want, if I could be in a tree, I wanted to be in a tree, but I didn't have to be necessarily. I was fine if I had to set up on the ground, which meant I always had like, you know, for me, I had my saddle on and, you know, and, and my ring of steps and stuff like that in one stick, you know? And so I could always get into a tree if I needed to, that way, if a hunt broke out, I could make it happen. Um, and so I'm assuming it's the same with you. Like when you're using, uh, you know, I don't know which, uh, loom of custom gear, you know, setup you're using, but every, all that stuff is lightweight. So it's not a hindrance to actually carry it with you in case you get into a situation where you can use it or when you need it. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Yeah, no, exactly. It was always on the fly and I always had my gear with me just in case. That's that's exactly it because it was just, you know, the chances of even seeing one and you're like, all right, well, I better get up a tree real quick because he's he's making his way to me. You know, there's so many different possibilities out there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, on, on, a, on a scale of one to 10, how did you... Uh, how did you feel about Kansas or how, or how, how likely are you to go back? Maybe we'll say it that way on a scale of one to 10. Honestly, I thought it was awesome out there. I loved it. I, yeah. I love the terrain. I loved it. Like the, the sense of adventure that it gave me, it was still a very wild place. Um, there was something about, you know, I, about just like coming out of those different grassy fields at night and there's coyotes howling everywhere and there's nothing around for miles. It's just vast. You know what I yeah. mean? You're trying to, you're a lone deer hunter out there trying to put it together with 
a headlamp on at night getting out of some of these places. It was just a really, really cool place to be. Um, it's the only, the only downfall is that you can't get a tag in it every year anymore. I, I think, um, right. I, I got denied this year, but next year I should be back in there. Right. Yeah. I know. I, I, uh, I pulled it off this year with no points. I don't know how that happened. So crazy. Um, yeah, I know, which I should knock on some wood cause I probably won't get one next year, but <laughs> it might be a sign. You might go out there and shoot a giant. Hopefully there you, you go. Do. It's like, Hey, I would be totally cool with that. If that was the case, you know, yeah, absolutely. Can't, can't come back next year, but you're going to shoot it. You're going to shoot a slob. How's that? And be like, Oh, I'll take it. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it too, man. It's just, I don't know. There's something about, um, I hunted, on, I hunted on the ground a lot, which I was never, uh, it was never a preferred like method for me, I guess. And being out there for two weeks kind of changed my mind where I was like, man, I really like being on the ground so long as, you know, I have an advantage from the ground or I, I can see far enough or, or whatever the case is. It was just that, you know, total freedom and mobility. Like if something's happening 200 yards away, like boom, you can be there. You know, there's no, let me take my stuff down real quick and, and move. It's literally, I just like pick my backpack up and start walking, you know? And that was really, um, that was really appealing. Now I didn't have my quintessential, you know, uh, Kansas moment where there's just like a giant running through a, a field, you know, as you're driving, you know, I didn't have that kind of, that kind of moment. But for me, man, it's, um, I've always said this, it's probably my favorite. It's been my favorite place to hunt so far for whitetails. Um, but Iowa was my favorite to watch deer behavior. That's kind of how I classify them. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm, I'm excited for Iowa too. That's a couple of years out, but, uh, yeah, Kansas is definitely worth going. Anybody listening, I would definitely recommend it. Yes. So anyway, we're going to switch gears back to, uh, back East here. Um, so we talked a little bit about you finding these target deer, you know, EHD is, you know, hit, you know, and, and I know you'd mentioned, you know, social media where it, it's not just deer. A lot of people are kind of experiencing that. I've seen a ton of guys from Ohio just talk about, you know, finding dead deer and just, you know, their deer are showing up dead. So it makes it interesting for a guy like you who, you know, and rightly so known as a guy who, I mean, I mark it on my calendar almost dude, where October 1st comes around. I'm like, I'm going to wait for Jake Bush to post a picture. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just kind of become, and I don't want to make it sound like you, that it's easy. You put a ton of work in, but like, you know, that's what you're, you, you know, how people kind of know you, man. Like you get it done early, you get it done cons consistently. And so I want to just kind of walk through, you know, what has your approach been to try to locate a deer even for, you know, October? And then I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you're, how this is going to kind of impact how you approach, you know, the, uh, the upcoming rut. So I guess 750 miles, you said, so how much, how much scouting versus hunting are you doing right now trying to find one? Oh, it's not even close. I mean, it's, it's changing a little bit right now. And I would say that's like observation sits. I'm, I'm putting more of those in because there's the deer moving a little bit further right now. And mm -hmm. so I can, I can afford to do that and try to just find one. Um, but basically it's just trying to, I'm trying to just find a deer to hunt and I still haven't done that. I, I have a, a bunch of really good three-year-olds, but pretty much all the four and five and six-year-old deer I know of have disappeared and a lot of them i know i i know for a fact are dead i've either, i've either found them or i know people that have found them hmm. um so yeah it's it's changed a lot and uh going into season i had five core areas that i had cameras in this year and you know in the past i've casted this very wide net and then i'll i'll reel it back in as season starts but it's it's a ton of work 
And so this year I, with having Charlie and everything, having a son, I decided to scale it back just a little bit on the travel that I was doing. Um, so I just had five core areas and I ran a lot more cameras in those areas than normal, but I really believed in those spots and normally they produce high caliber bucks. And so I figured, well, five areas, surely I'll have a couple to chase after. Um, and I did, I had a couple bucks show up that I was definitely going to be more than glad to chase after. And my top five at this point are all dead. Jeez. So, so yeah, so I, I basically, as season started, so were um, you getting that you were you getting them at least in velvet? that you yeah okay. so i yes so i had him in velvet i had the one right at the end of velvet and he ended up the farmer that found him scored him at mid 60s hmm. and he was a nice buck he was definitely a buck that was on the list he was uh kind of short tines but real wide a lot of mass just a beautiful typical 10 point nice beautiful buck um but yeah so you know going into season i i didn't have a target and it was just i, I remember telling myself take one sit like the first night and be the first person that hunts after that mid sixties buck I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. I went in, I put a sit at that deer, uh, going in the drainage, there was barely any sign. There was white oaks everywhere and they weren't getting hit by deer and there was no, you know, there's no deer poop. There was nothing. So I thought that was really odd. And I, I sat over where that deer normally beds over his scrape that he normally hits and, uh, never saw a deer in that entire drainage that night. And so that night I pulled all my cameras and I hadn't had, actually, I had one picture of a deer in like the last three weeks in there. Wow. And that was, I ended up finding out that they found 15 of them dead in that field at the head of that drainage. Wow. And so there were, there was, you know, normally that spot holds multiple good bucks and then they kind of filter through there throughout season. I've actually got a really nice three-year-old in there, like a mid 150 inch three-year-old that I'm hoping lives that's in there now. Um, that is he's just got all the potential in the world but so they'll filter back in eventually but so basically all my spots kind of turned out like that and so what i decided to do was take my five locations and pull 90 percent of those cameras out of the woods and then just cast a wide net but now i'm casting this net in season so it's a lot different yeah. so i went from in the last month i went from having cameras in five spots to having cameras in over 20 different locations Jeez, and i've just yeah i've casted this huge net and i'm kind of I don't feel like I'm in a rush at all. And I mm -hmm. felt that before, like I've gotten in a rush and it's hurt me. And so this year I'm telling myself like, Hey, you have, you find a ton of sheds. You have a bunch of big bucks pattern in January and late December. Like there's no rush. All you have to do is just spend the next month, month and a half and locating a deer. And if you find one, you can put a couple sits at them, whether it's in the rut or late season, absolutely go for it. But, uh, but my, I'll, I'll give you a day rundown. So like, so I have a day off of work. Let's say it's a Monday. I, I wake up before daylight. I go out and I'll pull cameras in the morning in a spot. I'll check those cameras. And if there's nothing going on, then midday, I will go like, I'll drive an hour. I'll go put cameras in a different drainage. Um, and then I'll go to a different spot and I'll throw an observation sit in for the night. And that's kind of been my rotation. It's like a three-step day. And I've just been reliving that day over and over in different places. And I mean, I've, I've moved well over, I've had well over 100 camera setups at this point. And I don't have that many, but I keep rotating them and taking them out of spots based on what's, what I'm getting for Intel within like a week of being there. So I'm, I'm trying to check them all within like two weeks. You know, like I don't want to let them soak for more than two weeks because it might be a dead area because there's these big pockets that got killed. But I'm just 
it's it's all just trying to locate one at this point. Is is it, it's a very odd season for me. Yeah. What so you mentioned don't don't get in a rush, right? I think that that's I don't know, man. I I felt like that was probably like one of the most important things you just kind of mentioned there, right? Is that the season seems short, right? Like to a lot of a lot of people, and it, and it is in compare in comparison or comparatively speaking to the rest of the calendar year or whatever. But do you think three years ago, say, or just just a number, however many number of years ago, would you have the discipline to not get in get a get into a rush? And what is it that has changed that allows you to kind of like say, all right, time out for a second, like let's not lose our head here, let's make a game plan, and let's work the plan. I, I definitely would have gotten in a rush before. Um, and, I, you know, I did two years ago. I think that was the biggest lesson learned for me was getting in a rush and killing a deer that wasn't my target. And then my target showed up to be very consistent throughout the next, like, three months. I mean, extremely consistent. And that that just kind of, you know, changed my mentality quite a bit. Um, but I would say that... Uh, you know, the, the biggest thing for me is really having confidence in my scouting where I think that I'm just at the point where I would rather take, like, I would rather take one sit the whole year, the whole four months of the Ohio season or five months, however long it is. I would rather take one sit at a deer that I know is alive than take 150 sits in an area where I don't even know if a deer exists that I want to go after. And that's kind of what slowed it down for me is just that thought process is you need to know that one's there first. I mean, yeah, I could go out and I could hope and just try to get lucky in the woods, but I don't even know if it would feel as successful to me. Mm -hmm. And everybody's different, right? Like that, there was a time when that's what I looked for. Um, But I really, I, I just like, I value the chess match so much with these deer that I, I just, that's the way that I want to get it done is by finding him and then exposing some sort of weakness and just beating him at his own game that's that's just what i'm looking for throughout my season you know i put all the work in for that so yeah um yeah yeah i would definitely say that that's evolved yeah i mean i think not not just like and you know i appreciate the fact that you want to find a specific deer because you want to you want to expose his weakness you want to play the game but you know the the other aspect of it is you know also is that you're being you're you're being efficient also <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, as opposed to like, yeah, you can just maybe go get lucky in a spot, which to to your point that you mentioned, doesn't, it won't feel quite as good, but even that notwithstanding, you know, it's almost how many of those sits would be a waste of time. Exactly. Versus that is, yes. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm right. I mean, I, I, I don't have quite the rinse repeat process you have, man, but I feel like I need to adopt it being quite honest. It was, it was somewhat similar where I would go out, scout, you know, have a Saturday off or whatever. And I'd go out and scout. You know, if I didn't have a deer kind of targeted and I would go check like all my areas, check my cameras, move some cameras. And then wherever I happened to be in the evening, I would just set up, you know, it's like, I'd be like, all right, I got like uh two hours of daylight or an hour and a half of daylight. I'm going to just get in a, in a tree and I'm just going to sit and see what I see. And then I would get up Sunday morning usually, and we can't hunt on Sundays, which since I don't have a deer kind of picked out, so to speak, uh, is actually a blessing in disguise because then I would just, there was no, I was not going to hunt at all that day anyway. So I would just go out and I would scout you know, move cameras, check cameras and try to figure out, you know, do I have a decent deer in the area and then spend some time going up, going up North. Cause there are some decent deer up there that I'm trying to, uh, trying to learn. So not quite the same kind of rinse repeat approach that you have, but very, uh, very similar. What, what's one thing that I think that you've learned 
through this approach? Like, is there anything, is there any like valuable lesson that you're kind of taking from it? There is, I think, I mean, I've located a ton of good bucks now that are, are on the list for next year. Um, but I think that the the thing that I've learned is that casting that wide net when you're after like specific class of deer is really important. The more ground that you're covering, the more camera intel that you're getting in different areas, the more opportunities that you're going to have. Um, so, so that's helped me a lot. And then, you know, there's been a lot of different things like this year by doing all this in season scouting, I'm really getting a good gauge of pressure in certain areas. Mm. Uh, I'm getting a good gauge of, how food sources are shifting in areas that I've spent, you know, not as much time in, um, or how the deer is starting to transition off of certain things. I'm, I'm learning a lot about the deer in the areas that I'm, that I'm focusing on. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a ton of different takeaways, man. I almost feel like bad news for the deer, good news for you, but I almost feel like this season's like one of those, uh, almost like a red shirt. <laughs> Uh, in like football, like you got the freshman quarterback coming in, who's very talented. Right. But like, he's behind a senior and the senior's good. And he's, he knows he's got good leadership and he knows all the right buttons to push for the team to be, to, to be a good team. And then that one year off that red shirt learns all the information that he needs to kind of become the, the, the next team leader. I almost feel like you had a, uh, an imposed red shirt year by the deer <laughs> by EHD and that, it's going to actually backfire on them because of what you're kind of picking up, you know, the, the nuances maybe that, that maybe we'd overlook just during the course of a normal hunting year. Is there any, is there any truth to that? Do you think? Yes, absolutely. And then, and then just the sheer volume of drainages Spots. that I'm, yeah. yes, that I'm set up in now. I mean, I have so much inventory this year as opposed to most years and a lot of deer that are really close to being right at that line. And I just, a couple of them are going to survive. Mm -hmm. and they're going to be immediate targets for next year. And that's, that's a really good feeling. I feel like I'm getting like an extra couple of months to scout. You know, I, I tell everybody I like scouting probably more than hunting anyways. Like mm -hmm. killing is just like the final touch on the, you know, that's the, that's the last little piece of the whole deal. Um, so yeah, so it's just like, I don't know. I, I definitely feel more confident going into next year because of this. I feel like there's a lot of silver linings to take away. And I've, I feel like I still have so much time that I can make it work this year and kind of, you know, still find a target. So right. I think it's definitely for the best. Um, it's just different. It's definitely, definitely different. Right. How much do you think this is helping you just level up? Like you already, your woodsmanship is already on point, but how much do you think this is, have you still sat back and thought about like, man, there's a handful of things that I've picked up, you know, this past couple months that man, I, I that I overlooked or that I just didn't think about, or it was there anything like, I don't want to say aha moment, but is there anything that's sticking out to you that was like, man, this one thing that I picked up, you know, or that I, that I figured out now is, is, I don't want to say game changer, but is definitely something that's going to be helping me in the future. No, there's a, there's a really good one actually. So normally these hub systems are like these, uh, let's say I have a drainage that has a bunch of different betting points on it. And typically there's, let's say five bucks in that drainage, right? Mm -hmm. They tear that area up with sign this time of year. So normally they're signed on the benches, the side of the hills, they're signed down on the bottoms, they're signed all over the place uh, because they're competing with each other. So they're laying down a lot more sign. So this year, in a lot of these areas that are already very low density areas, now implement EHD into those, and you have, let's say that fifty percent of the deer died in some of these spots, and it might be more than that. I really right. believe it's more than that in some of these areas. 
So now instead of five bucks in that area, you might only have one or you might only have one in like four or five drainages combined. Hmm. And what I'm finding is that there's, there's such, there's a lot less sign than normal. And I've been talking to a lot of Ohio hunters that have noticed this, that uh, a lot of the scrapes are drying up already. Well, the scrapes are drying up because these bucks are making scrape lines and no other deer are checking those scrapes like normal. Hmm. And they just don't have the competition to keep hitting the same scrapes. And so I'm seeing scrape lines. I, I've been seeing scrape lines dry up since like October 25th. I wow. mean, go completely bone dry. No more bucks on my cameras in those areas. And they're just shifting over like one drainage. Hmm. So normally you'll have a buck in each drainage this time of year. And he kind of like, that's his, his core. And then he'll skip, he'll like bounce over to the next drainage and leave a little sign and compete with that buck. And then he'll go back over. Well, a lot of these deer, because there's no other deer in that other drainage are like are transitioning late October now. Um, but the, the big takeaway for me with that is the way that they're laying down sign or that one single buck is laying down sign. So a lot of these spots I might have just overlooked before because it wasn't hammered with sign. But I'm finding like, let's say that the other day, for example, I was in a hub. There was a ridge side that had three different benches on it. And I, I walked the top bench and there's no sign on that top bench. And I'm like, well, there's, there's not a deer in here. And I walk the bottom and there's not a lot of sign in the bottom. And then all of a sudden I get on the lower third bench, mm -hmm. the most unsuspecting place that I would have thought there would have been a deer sign or deer travel. And this deer was lighting up that bench with scrapes. I mean, there was, there had to be over 20 scrapes and a half mile leading to the main hub but it was only on that one elevation of that ridge. If you were anywhere else, you would have had no idea that that deer existed. Hmm. And so that's something that's helped me a lot. I think wood woodsmanship wise, as I'm, I'm starting to focus on that fine sign a little bit more, as opposed to these areas that are just hammered with sign like normal. Right. That's interesting. Do you think, do you think going forward, just with the, the kill off or the, 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 the number of bucks that have died off, do you think the magnitude of sign going forward, at least let's just say for next year, because we can't, you know, we can't, you know, uh, extrapolate out two or three years necessarily. But so just for example, next year, you have maybe a lower density of, of bucks. Are you anticipating seeing just kind of less sign and that the sign that you do find, even if it isn't big sign might be the best sign in that, in that particular spot? Yes, I, it absolutely could be. And I think it's going to, play a big role in my off season scouting too, just because normally I get in these areas and like, like if I pick the right spot, there was definitely a buck in there and he was bedding and he was leaving hair in his beds and matted down leaves. And he was kicking up the leaves, uh, you know, in December to try to find chestnut oaks. And he was just leaving sign all over the place. And there's going to be a lot of areas where I don't know if I'm going to be able to find as much of that. So Going into new spots next year, I'm going to have to keep that in the back of my mind that, hey, this could be a really good area. You're going to have to look at more of the historical sign around like old rubs on trees and stuff to try to figure out if it was any good or if it ever has the potential to be good again, because what happened last year might not show you very much. Right. Um, you know, some of these spots, like I have a spot that was absolutely torched with sign last year. And held a half dozen bucks and there is not a single there's not a single buck in there right now there hasn't been for at least a month but that's a killer spot i mean that spot holds a you know close to boone and crockett deer most years wow. and there's just so if you came down though like an out-of-stater and you came down to scout and you got in that area you would say well this is junk but You'd that's awesome right yeah, yeah it's an awesome spot so 
it's going to make off-season scouting a little bit more difficult. That was one of the hardest things of that Northern Big Woods piece, man, is I had to kind of recalibrate. And it's just, there's not a lot of, I shouldn't say there's not a lot of deer. They exist in very kind of specific pockets. Um, like you might walk two, three miles between areas and not see a stitch of sign. And you'd swear on your life that there's not a deer that has ever walked through there. And then boom, you just kind of show up and there'll be like a, I always kind of refer to them as like almost micro habitats that was like yeah. out of nowhere all of a sudden, like the right stuff that whitetails want, whether it's structure or bedding or whatever it is, food potentially, and boom, there'd be like an explosion of sign. It wouldn't be huge, but there wasn't a lot of competition between bucks. Like we weren't, you know what I mean? Like they just weren't laying down huge sign because there's just so much. I mean, it's the area up there so vast, you know? And that, so I had to kind of recalibrate. And it's interesting that you said the bottom third because that's the one thing there that I've kind of found that's held true. Like any place that I've found bucks, and have found the most buck sign up that up in that piece was always on the bottom third. When I got up to the top, it always kind of dried up, which is as soon as you said that, I was like, wow, I was like, it's kind of interesting because I found the same thing there. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And I, I don't know if that's, uh, you know, specific to a certain area or if it's just like a specific deer mm-hmm. feels more comfortable in a, in a, in a spot. You know, I think that we put a lot of generalities on deer and travel and bedding and all of that, but at the end of the day, they're, they all have their own personalities. And I've really started to focus in on that a lot more this year hmm. with, with all this going on. It's just like the nuances that I normally don't see very often or that I don't pick up on because I, like if I walk the upper third and it's hammered, well, okay. I just val- I validated that what I normally look for works, right? but this year it's not validated. And so I'm looking for new things and I'm like, wow, that's really weird that it's not the upper third and that this one's the lower third even though the upper third might set up better, like what is this deer doing? But it's a personality thing, I think. So yeah, it's uh, they're, they're, it's cool. It's definitely different. How would you, did you, have you hypothesized why you think just as that, using that as an example, why the bottom, why the bottom third was there any, so go ahead. Yeah, I think, I think so with that one. So uh, these, a lot of the ridges down here, you know how they are. They're like wide open ridges and they're really steep. And then on top, they're not extremely wide on top. A lot of times, like they could be only like 30 yards, like kind of like a knife point. Yep. Um, so it just like a lot of times it depends on cover from what I found down here, but this specific one, there's a power line that comes up and and then goes down into the bowl of that Ridge and where it creates almost like a hub. He's actually betting down in there. Hmm. So he's betting at the head of the, uh, at the head of the drainage, like up as far as it goes, but it's really thick because of a power line. So there's a transition line there. He's got, you know, um, he can like sit up on that thick power line, kind of look down that drainage with a south wind. He's he's set up perfect with a north wind. He can still bed there like he's got a lot of things going for him. And the, the just the spot that he comes out of that power line, like the one little flat is just on that upper third. And then what that does is it scales like 50 yards, probably above a hiker's trail the whole way down that drainage. So he's got a sight advantage and a scent advantage on that hiker's trail the whole time. And then up on top, there's kind of a trail on top of that ridge too. So he's just, he's in the perfect spot where he'll never get detected. Right. Laying in, is he laying in between both those trails? He, he is. Yes. Yeah. He's laying in between the trail on top and then the trail in the bottom. Well, the way the trail in the bottom comes in, it actually comes off uh, one of the, one of the points to the North that faces South and it comes so it, it doesn't come down the bottom the whole way. It comes down like the side of the 
North Ridge and then makes a 90 degree turn into that drainage, like 60 yards from his bed. So where he lays, he watched those hikers come down the hill to his north and they come down to the bottom and then they have to turn left and go out the drainage and he's just laying there safe all day long. So the pocket he's in doesn't have the bottom hiker trail, but he can watch the bottom hiker trail. Right. Yeah. So he's, he knows what's coming and going from basically all directions from where he's, from where he's at. Yeah. He's got every advantage pretty much. And when we scouted that, we came in from the top and immediately he had us like he was watching us <laughs> when we made the turn and found there's a, there's a hub scrape right there. When we made the turn and found that scrape, he had us, he was watching us. So how, uh, so if anyone were to hunt that, would people typically walk in using one of those trails? Is that how someone would typically? You would almost, yeah, you would, it would, it would really be the only way and it would have to be what I, what I thought of here is on a south wind, he's pretty much bulletproof in there. It would have to be like a north wind or a really low velocity day. Mm -hmm. And you would have to wait until those thermals start dumping out of the head of that drainage just enough to go get set up. And then hopefully he doesn't come down early and hopefully he comes down at the right time. But what I've, what I found with a lot of those deer is when they, when they have that thermal disadvantage in those spots, a lot of times they'll come down a little bit early to still catch that thermal pull up. Mm. And so it just, it's, it's going to be really situational. Um, I, one thing I've been doing is carrying cameras with me. So I pop a camera up on that trail where he's got all those scrapes and I will see kind of what he's doing on what days and kind of build like a, like an in season pattern on him. Um, right, I plan on checking see. that camera in like the next week. Oh, so dude, you got to text me, let me know. Cause like, I, I, I'm almost, I'm getting what you're saying where it's like, you're going to look at it and be like, all right, whenever he's got this wind, you know, and he still wants a little bit of that thermal updraft is he getting out of his bed 30 minutes early before the sun sets before the thermals start pulling down so you can get the wind advantage coming out at least right yes exactly nice. that's exactly what i'm thinking what are you looking at for like to just like look at your like wind your weather and and stuff like that what are you using to like just kind of document all this stuff uh, i use wonderground quite a bit i use just the weather channel app accuweather uh there's an app called windy which mm -hmm. is like from what i've understood like a parasailing app and it shows a lot more wind currents and stuff throughout mm. the day. I really like that. I, I like that one a lot because if I just type in like my home address, it'll say the, the wind is Southwest. Right. Well on the windy app, if you actually zoom in, it'll show, okay, yeah, it's Southwest at your house. But if you go 20 miles South, the wind current is doing something totally different. And it's, you know how it is in the Hills. That is not 100% correct, but yeah. it does give me, a little more detail to where I get to these spots. If I'm up on top of the ridge, it seems like the prevailing wind normally matches what Wendy says. And then obviously you need to factor in uh, thermals and then the way the ridges turn and uh, wind velocity and everything else when you get yeah, out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh that's the one thing I'm just still trying to figure out with this uh, North piece, just because of how certain areas that I wanted to hunt, like I guess yesterday, there's this one side of the mountain that I wanted to hunt. There's a bench where I found, I'll send you some pictures of some of the deer. I didn't, I had a camera in there that I hadn't checked since I, I put, I put it there in April and hadn't checked it until this, until not this past weekend, but the weekend before and some good bucks in there. And, uh, I wanted to try to throw a hunt at it yesterday, but I just could not get the wind to, to work for me. Cause whenever I went up and checked the camera, uh, I guess not this past weekend, but the weekend before I had the same exact wind that should have been good for that spot. That's why I walked up there. I was like, Hey, I'm going to walk up, check this camera. And then I'm just going to set up and hunt it. Well, I got up there 
and the wind's supposed to be good for me, but it blows almost the opposite direction up there. <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's like, whenever it's a new spot, it's like you almost have to walk into it to check a camera or whatever a couple times and wind map it so you know that, hey, whenever it says northeast, I'm either getting a northeast or northeast means I've got an east or whatever it is, you know, in some of these new areas. And that's always kind of the learning curve in the hills is trying to figure out what the wind's going to do before you start throwing hunts at stuff. It is. And I, I love wind mapping. I do a lot of it. Um, and, but there's, you know, it helps a ton. It really does. But there's so many little nuances with mm -hmm. that too. Like now the sun sets a little bit differently than, the, than in the summertime. Yep. So you might have a ridge that you wind mapped on that gets shaded, let's say an hour sooner than it normally does. And all of a sudden, like, like that drainage I was in the other day, looking at that deer, trying to figure everything out on the fly. I'm trying to wind map and everything. Well, the sun set, so I, I'm facing north going up the drainage. Mm -hmm. The sun is setting to the west. So when the sun starts to set, it shaded that east-facing hillside. And as soon as that east-facing hillside got shaded, it was like this downrush of thermals pouring down into that bottom. And But they were climbing up that steep ridge on the other side, the west-facing side. Mm -hmm. So there was a, you, you know, you could play off that if, if it was a really tight drainage. But the way that that, changed the prevailing winds in there when that happened was almost immediate i mean it went from wind in my face to wind going dead east and even a little bit north just based on the way that those thermals were dumping off and then starting to push back the other way yeah and it doesn't so it, it doesn't take much either like as far as like no you know yeah. what i mean like there's a spot you just re reminded me there's a spot uh in that north piece that there's a stream that's that's there that's running through like a trout stream and it's all lined with, with hemlocks. And I found that yep. this past off season, it's just all tore up with, with scrapes. And so I ended up hunting it, uh, last weekend in, in, in the morning. And, uh, and I was watching the sunrise and it's one of the last places to get, to get sun. And since the stream is there, it's like my thermals were just kind of sucking down into that stream. And it was actually flowing the same way as the, the current of the water. But as soon as that sun hit me, man, cause it's, I'm almost, I'm stuck between like a stream and I'm kind of off the stream a little ways and off the hemlocks. And then there's a big ridge right in front of me. It just basically goes straight up. As soon as the sun started hitting that spot, it's like, boom, thermals changed, wind changed immediately, you know? And so I had to get, had to get down. And so what I figured out was if, if I don't actually go out of like too far out away from the hemlock line and I stay closer to where it's always going to kind of stay in that dark cover, no matter what the sun's doing, I can almost always play the thermal that's going to be pulled down that stream. And so yesterday I actually set up on it for an evening and did just that I actually set up on the ground and just kind of stayed just to the edge of where that dark cover still is. And no matter what the sun was doing, I was still getting the thermal, just dumping down over that edge right into that stream, which makes it pretty, like pretty bulletproof. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I definitely have seen spots like that before. Yeah. It's just, you know, it, it was a matter of like 30 yards or 40 yards. You know what I mean? It wasn't a whole lot of space, you know, that I needed to kind of change where my setup was at to get the, to get the advantage. But so man, ruts coming up now, you know, you're, you know, October's almost over. You're still looking, you're still looking for, uh, still looking for a deer. How are you, how, how are you going to hunt the rut? Like what's your plan? Cause I know when we spoke, I want to say it was this last time that we spoke, or maybe it was even the time before that there was a buck that you killed in the rut and you did the classic like rut hunter approach. And you were like, by the end of it, you were like, man, screw this. I know where he's bedded. I'm just going to go hunt him in his bed. And, that, and you were killed him and you ended up killing that deer during the rut coming out of his bed. So what's your approach this rut, knowing that, you know, you're still kind of looking, looking for a deer. What are you, uh, what are you going to do? 
Yeah. Yep. That was definitely a bed hunt. And I was hunting like normally in the rut, I find myself hunting really thick cover. And that's, that's something I do all year long. Like mm-hmm. I, most of the areas that I'm hunting and most of my setups, I can only see like 20 or 30 yards. And I've got spots where they're so thick. I have one 10 yard shot and I can't see anything more than 20 yards and 270 degrees. Like yep. really generally I'm hunting really thick stuff. And I think what I'm going to do for the rut is try to throw more observation sets out and just, you know, the leaves are coming off down here in Southern Ohio. You can see if you're up on a ridge. You can see down the bottom and up the other ridge. Like you can see hundreds of yards this time of year. And I think I'm just going to use that to my advantage and just try to glass a good one. Um, and then if I glass a good one, I can make a play. But the, the bigger thing is if I know he's there and I glass him, basically I can use the rut as like a really good, time to observe a big one doing something different and then i can say okay he's in this general vicinity now if i don't kill him during the rut because he's running around at least i have somewhere to start for late season at least you know i know of all of these good south facing slopes that have good red oaks and good chestnut oaks uh i normally get some good ones on camera i normally find some good sheds and if i can just locate a good one in an area I can find him late season. And I feel like the rut's going to give me a really good chance to do that. Even with all my cameras in the field, the chances of a good buck running by one of those cameras is probably pretty high. Right. So if I just keep tabs on them, it's kind of given me just, it's giving me more range of those deer to fine tune it. And then once I know he's there, I'll just go and distribute more cameras and I'll try to get some more observation sets and then come up with a plan. Man, that's, that's such a good approach, dude, especially where you're at right now with, you know, obviously trying to, trying to find a good, a good buck that it's, it's smart. I mean, you're using the rut as a, as an extended observation, right? It's like, yes, exactly. it's almost like, I don't need to put it, and I know you'll still be putting boots on the ground, but you could almost say the deer moving in their, in the probability of a good one running by the camera is actually doubling or tripling the scouting miles that I would put on at any given day. Exactly. Yeah. That's slick, man. That's a good, that's a good approach. And then, I mean, I think, I mean, your, your confidence for a late season. I mean, that's one of the things I'm a terrible late season hunter, like, and just don't call it what it is. <laughs> and so for me, it's like, whenever you were talking earlier, like don't get in a rush. I try not to, but then I also recognize like, man, late season, I'm just not a good late season hunter. And if it doesn't happen by sometime in November, it's going to be a, it's going to be, I'm going to be on the struggle bus come, uh, come like uh, December 1st, essentially. So I, I mean, that's one of the things, man, with you having that in your back pocket where it's like, look, you know, I've got these spots that late season will produce. I know they will. And so I don't have a need to like go bombing into places without a plan. It's awesome. Yeah. And I, I think that that's something that's going to be like, it's easy to say that when I'm in a state like Ohio that has a season until February. Right. Where I have so much time. And like for some reason, that last week of December and first couple of weeks of January, the deer just get so patternable down here. Um, you know, especially if we get snow and it's cold temps, it's just they're, they're in trouble for sure. But if I was in New York still living up there, it would be a little bit different. And I would have a different thought process because season's coming to an end quickly and that definitely is going to lead to a little bit of panic it's like man i got a tag in my pocket and it's you know it's season's over december 15th and it's december 7th like that's kind of a big deal right <laughs> it's kind of a big deal right yeah yeah, yeah it's an understatement there man 
Oh, dude. So I hope you find a good one, man. Like I'm, I'm always kind of checking every day, hop on Insta, see what, see what Jake Bush is up to checking to see if he's, if he's found one yet. What, uh, what do you, what, uh, what chances are you giving yourself, man? Like, are you feeling, you know, you feeling good? Like, I mean, I always feel like if you find a deer, like his day, his days are numbered, but what, how are you feeling as far as, you know, your possibility of finding a good buck? I mean, do you feel like it's going to happen or do you, or is there a sense of a little bit of, I don't want to say reality, but a sense of like, man, the HD is really, really bad in this area. And the chances of there being a buck that I want to chase coming by, even extending like the observations with cameras during rut and stuff like that is just low odds. Like what's your, what's your kind of feeling on that? I'm going to make it happen, man. I'm going to, I'm going to put as much work as I can in with as much time as I have off left. <laughs> and, uh, just, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything in my power to find a buck to chase. And then if I can, like I said, if I can get him alive and have my, have a, a December or January shot at him, I, I have a, it's almost refreshing because I feel like if I have one and I find one, the late season pattern lasts for a while. It lasts mm. for, month and a half maybe you know even two months so if i find one i have so much time to sit back and put a plan together and then the late season opens up a lot of things like i was saying like early season i can't glass the hills late season i can go up on a adjacent ridge in the morning and set up and watch every deer hit a chestnut oak flat and then go to bed in a greenbrier patch and i can i can watch that happen over and over and over until i see the weakness i need and go kill that deer Right. And so it, it, it honestly, like it open it almost opens up a little sense of adventure for me down here and just a different style of hunting. Like, I don't know about you, but I love being in the woods in December, January, February, mm-hmm. I just something about it. And so if I have a tag in my pocket and I can do what I normally do, but just still in that pursuit, I, I, I'm kind of excited about that. So I, yeah. I do feel like I'll find one and I'll get an opportunity. Yeah. There's something about the timber in those months. Like for me, just being completely honest, you know, even though I, I struggle with late season, I, I do like it because it takes a lot of the fair weather hunters out of the picture. Um, and in a state like PA where I have a ton of pressure, it, it gets rid of a lot of the pressure for me. Um, now they've been pressured to, to no end prior to that with gun season and stuff like that. So you're, you know, still kind of dealing with that. But I typically at that point, will have the woods to myself. So your point, it's like, if you can figure out what some, what a deer is doing, there's a good chance they're going to continue to, to do it. And they're likely not going to have someone bumping them around or, or whatever the case is. Um, man, I want one other question is kind of going back to the, what you're doing with cameras where you're kind of leapfrogging them and stuff like that. And like, you're letting them hang in a spot and then, and then moving them. What right now, given the state that the deer are in, you know, in, in, in your spots, what do you actually need to see to, to not move the camera? Like, cause I know you're saying like, Hey, I'm going in there and some of the, you know, like two weeks, I don't see a single deer or, or very little or in, in nothing worth uh, spending any time on and I'm moving the camera. But what would you actually have to see in order to leave a, leave a camera there and say like a giant hasn't come by, but what makes you leave a camera in that spot? I would say this year, just general deer activity or buck activity. Mm. Um, the spots that are hot are hot because all the deer didn't die. And some spots I put cameras in and there's just nothing going on. It got to the point where unless I was finding like red hot sign, I wasn't even putting a camera in there. Uh, and then I'm just, yeah, if I, if I have a really good buck in that area that I think next year will be a target, 
I'm finding myself leaving a couple cameras in those spots just to keep tabs on them because I'm, I might as well, right? I'm already in there. Um, but I'm, I'm taking all the other cameras that aren't heating up or that don't have a buck on them. And I'm just shifting them around to new spots. And it's, it's gotten to the point now where I would say that 15 of the 20 spots have really good sign and they have deer in them that are alive and breathing. <laughs> and so that's like, that's the starting point for me. Right. Um, and I, I really, you know, I, I'm, I'm keeping a couple cameras in my backpack at all time. And I don't put them out now unless I think like, okay, there's, there's a chance that there's a good one in here. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's going to be a matter of rotating a couple more in and out. But a lot of them, if, if I can put them in an area where there's, where there's deer that are alive, they'll probably get to soak for a while. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's not funny, but it's interesting how our perspectives change whenever our circumstances change. Right. It's like (laughs) before. it's totally different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I'm just looking for proof of life. And if I have proof of life, it's staying. You know, where before it was like, if there's not a deer on here that's worth me wanting to chase, you know, and same way, you know, it's like, I'll move this camera because I'm seeing some, some does and some young bucks. I'm going to move this camera where it's like, you know, I know at least for me in the North piece, I'm like, if there's proof of life on a camera, I'm leaving it there because it's few and far between that you even get that in some of those places up there. I couldn't agree more. And it's funny because I posted an Instagram story uh, a couple weeks ago now, but basically I had found like my first fresh scrape area <laughs> like it was it was the first one of like a month and i was all jacked up on my story i'm like oh man like there's a fresh scrape he's living he's alive there's a good track and my buddy got a hold of me he goes i've never seen you so pumped about finding a scrape like you find a thousand scrapes a year and i was like dude this one is alive like he's he's alive he's alive what uh <laughs> does it does it make you feel um is there is there like a sense of feeling like a uh i'm trying to figure out how to say this like you're not learning hunting over again but like you're uh earlier like that same sense of excitement that you would see like whenever you were a new hunter when you would find a scrape and you started just started putting puzzle pieces together like it does it bring some some of the some of that back where it's like any sign is exci- is signed to get excited about as opposed to 100%. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Because, <laughs> you know, you'd start taking it for, for granted after a while. Like if I run cameras in five or 10 spots, those spots generally are going to be hot because they're good spots. And then, yeah, you lose that. And all of a sudden it's like starting back off from nothing. It's like, okay, well, I need to, you know, obviously change my thought process for this year and evolve and adapt as quickly as possible. And then when you finally find a spot that has a deer, you're like, holy cow, there's a deer. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, yeah, it evolves. I mean, it's the craziest. It really is. It's a, it's a fun season for me. Yeah. And that's why I don't think I'm frustrated because like, it's, I'm finding joy out of things that normally are just like, so I'm, I've, I've become accustomed to finding that it just means a lot more this year. <laughs> right. Dude, that's such a good perspective being able to kind of take a hard season like this and find the find the joy in it. Um, cause I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of a lot of people, including myself that would, you know, get kind of in the dumps. And I had to remind myself of that when I just wasn't finding deer, uh, you know, I was like, I'm like, I don't know where they went. You know, I was like, I've got nothing on camera. And I just had to remind myself that this is just supposed to be fun. Like stop, you know, obsessing over it and just go hunt and just don't think about it. And I did. And that was the day that I had two great encounters and it kind of rejuvenated like my uh, my zest for hunting for the season. You know what I mean? Where I was like, 
I saw life actually from a tree and was like pumped about it. And I was like, okay. I was like, now I'm ready to actually go to Kansas. I'm ready to actually go do a hard hunt. Because before that, I was like, I wasn't sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like, felt like I was beaten down and uh, just needed to have like a pep talk and like, hey man, don't take these things for granted. You know, these things just don't, don't come by. Like you got to put some work in and, and sometimes even when you put the work in it, they don't, they don't happen. And so you just have to enjoy like the small things, you know? So I, that was awesome that you, that you're finding joy in like an otherwise kind of hard, hard season overall. Yeah, it's been, it's been cool, man. Awesome brother woman. I've been, uh, I've been bending your ear for a little over an hour now, dude. I want to be sensitive to your time. Make sure you get back to the fam. Uh, do we cover everything? Is there anything that we missed that you want to touch on or we, do you think we did a good enough job there? I think it was awesome. I think it was, uh, really good podcast, some good things to take away. And I'm, I'm sure that there's, you know, people down here that are kind of dealing with the same thing this year. And I would say that, like you said a minute ago, I mean, hunting is supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be something that we enjoy. And, you know, you can, you can push yourself and learn different things about yourself doing it. And I think the last thing that we should ever do is feel pressured because of, of societal influence Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And that's something that I've struggled with before, but I can, I can tell you that that's, uh, that's long gone, man. I, I, it's 100% for me. And I hope that most people are hunting for them and it's their own journey. And a season with an unfilled tag is not an unsuccessful season. There's so many takeaways. You're spending time in the woods. You're enjoying yourself, friends and family. There's so many different things to take away from an unfilled tag. So, uh, yeah, I think that just, you know, do it for the right reasons and, and we're all set and, and just keep having fun really. Awesome. I think that's the perfect place to end it, brother. Let people know where they can find out more about what you got going on and they can follow along with your season. Yep. So Instagram is the Jake Bush. Uh, Facebook is Jake Bush. And then all the hunts from Southern Ohio are on the Legends of the Hunt YouTube. Awesome, brother. I appreciate you, man. I'll keep tabs on you, see how you're doing. And I'll, uh, hopefully I'll be sending you a text, a, a positive text from Kansas. Yes, I hope so. Good luck, man. Thanks, buddy. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see y'all. Oh, 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 oh,